You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. Welcome. Vernon Masieva is the executive director of Black Mesa Trust a Hopi leader in the Coyote clan and former chairman of the Hopi Tribal Council from the village of Hotvilla, one of the oldest continuously inhabited human settlements in the Americas in Arizona. Steve Wilhelm of the Religica team had an opportunity to speak with Elder Masieva. The whole interview is so good that we let it run its entire length. This is a moving introduction by Elder Masieva. It excites the mind and heart about what we cherish. Take a listen. I am the founder and director of Black Mesa Trust. Black Mesa Trust? Okay. Yes, which was organized back in 1998 by myself with the help of elders, Hopi elders. The purpose of Black Mesa Trust was to save water for future generations of Hopis. They were very concerned about the waters that Peabody Energy, which is the world's largest coal mining company, was pumping out from a deep, ancient aquifer called Navajo Aquifer, which has in it fossil water, meaning it was put there thousands of years ago, maybe during the last ice age or something like that. Mm -hmm. But it's ancient water. It is contained in a deep aquifer in a confined aquifer, meaning a bowl with a kind of like a saran wrap over it. So there's no possibility of recharge from the top down into the aquifer. So once the water is gone, it's gone. And just for the listeners, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong that I've been there, the Hopi Reservation is with the Hopi Nation is within the Dine Nation, the Navajo Nation, which is as huge, it's about as yeah. big as Rhode Island. The Hopi uh, Nation is a little island yeah. within this vast Navajo area, and that's up in northern Arizona, northeast of the Grand Canyon, Okay, about maybe 130 miles. And I think you said that you live on Third Mesa? Yes, the Hopi uh, consists of Hopi villages. There's 12 independent Hopi villages that's situated around three mesas. And Black Mesa is very unusual. If you fly over it, you see a, a hand, a human hand, but it's a cup hand. So inside the cup are some pretty valuable resources. Now, Black Mesa, is that the same as Third Mesa, or is that... No, that's, that's the whole region. That's the whole region, okay. Area. Third Mesa is yeah, within that. And within that, you have the shape human hands, cup human hands. In the little finger is First Mesa, and there are three villages there, okay? Yep. Independent villages. Then there's on the second finger, there's also three independent villages. And on the third mesa, there is six villages. And then on the thumb, 
is two more villages. Okay. And your people have been there how long? Well, a long, long time. Our ancestors were the first to settle in this region called Black Mesa. One of the villages considered to be the oldest continuously living community. It's, di- it's dated to 1000 AD. That's how ancient that village is. And there are about 800 people still there. They're yeah. still there in that village. And by choice, they don't allow electric power to come in mm. or plumbing. So they have to haul in the water. They're still living in the old way and planning the old way. For some reason, that's their preference. So it's still there, the oldest continuously inhabited village in, in North America. Yeah. That place of that name is Oraivi. And this area they were speaking about is pretty arid. I don't know how many inches of rain it gets a year, but not much, right? Yeah, well, in a good year, you get about 10 inches. 10 inches a year. And it's on a high desert area. Yeah. See, there's two types of deserts. There's the low desert, which is around Phoenix. Hope it's called the, the male desert. And we're about five to 6,000 feet above the sea level. Our mesas are. And that's referred to as the female desert. Like I said, it doesn't get much rain. And there is no rivers or water that is available for use to irrigate the fields. And Hopis are farmers. So Hopis are considered the best dry farmers in the world. And we're still planting the seeds that were carried over from the third world. The third world is called Palatki. It's somewhere in Mexico or central Mexico. That's where the ancestors came from. And they were planting all these crops there. So they corn. They, oh yeah, and they beans. brought the seeds to the mesas, and they're still planting it. And I've actually, you know, I'm very honored. I've been to First Mesa. Actually, I've been to Third Mesa, too. But from First Mesa, looking down, yeah. there's fields down there. But I remember thinking, oh, my God, that's so dry. How do they grow anything there? But yes. they do, right? Yep. You do. do. And we so do. there's some things you've learned about how to cherish water, how to preserve what you have. Yeah. Can you say a little bit about that? The Hopi ancestors know a lot about the nature of water. What is water? They know what water is. And they know that water, they're our ancestors. They live up in a cosmic sea, up in the clouds, the cloud people. That's where the ancestors, that's one of their homes. It's, it's up, way up there. The ancestors of your people? Ancestors of the people. And so, ancestors, as a matter of fact, not just of my people, but your ancestors. The ancestors of all humankind and all living things are up there. Yeah. Not just Hopi. So, the way the ancestors survive in a desert world as farmers growing six varieties of corn, squash, and beans called Three Sisters. We're vegetarians. You know, and uh, you're going to behave in a certain way to survive there. When there is no rain and there is a desperate need for rain, 
the priests, the elders, come together. They put their hearts and their minds together and meditate and pray, pray for rain. And that creates energy, which then vibrates up to the cloud people, the ancestors, and they hear it. They hear it, and they resonate. They come in happiness, bringing water to the crops, to the animals. And so water is not a commodity. Water is a spiritual thing. You probably have to live the right way to make that work, right? You have to in a desert. To survive, you got to work together like the red ants. We Hopi villages, to me, were built on a model built by the red ants. The red ants were the first earthlings on earth, and they have a community. They all work together. They take good care of their mother. They don't fight. They all cooperate, help one another. Hope is called that sumit nangwa, namit nangwa. Help each other, work together. You know, that's really what hope is all about. And they express this in a simple saying. When you see a child crying, stop, wipe the tears, comfort the child. I think you said feed them too when you were... When you're hungry, feed the child. That's really what hope is. Everything else is just ceremonies. But Hopiism, I call it Hopiism, is based on that notion of charity, cooperation, being responsible for your actions and inactions. When you see a child crying, you just don't ignore the child and walk away. You're responsible. And that's very fundamental to Hopi. Don't war among yourselves. Don't do that. Live peacefully. And I want to get back to the meditation, the prayer for water. And it seems like in order, just to double check, in order for that to work, the resonance, the resonance to work, right. people have to live in the right way. They have exactly. to be not abusing, but respecting, I think. Right. Yeah. Could you speak to that a little bit? Because I think that's sort of you know, the opposite of Peabody Minds. Right. When we went to school, junior high school, I remember that. So physics teacher did a demonstration. He put two tuning forks, you know, of the same mass, I guess. And he would hit one. And this one would pick it up and start ringing. That's science. Hopi, that's what Hopi knows. See, resonance. Resonance. The prayers, if they're done right, create energy, vibration. And that's what goes out. And the ancestors hear it, they come back. And they bring rain to water the crops, the animals, the plants, the insects. And the Hopis say water has many faces. That's what, that's what we're told. And water is not, like I said, just a thing. It's a spirit. It's our breath. And water is indestructible. It's one element you cannot destroy. It changes faces, as Hopi say. So liquid can turn to solid, like ice. Mm-hmm. Liquid can turn to vapor. When you boil it, just like on a teapot, 
but it never goes anywhere. It's there eternally. So those humans that were put here and they pass away, it's just their body that die, like a corn stalk. The corn stalk leave the seed. And when your body dies, the liquid, and 80% of your body is liquid. It's holy water. It, it escapes. It ascends in happiness to join the cloud people. And so the ancestors are part of what science called the hydrologic cycle. In Western science, mankind has no part. In Hopi, we are the water cycle because we ascend, we come back down, it's rain, snow, replenish the breast of Mother Earth with fresh water so all living things can drink from it. And then the waters run through the rivers down to the ocean, which is the first mother. Hope is called the ocean mother. Before Earth came about, there was nothing but water on Earth. It was a sea, an ocean, and then Mother Ocean gave birth to the Earth. So there's a lot of concern in terms of climate change with some, well, suddenly right now in Cape Town, you know, they're running yeah. out of water in other cities. Of course. It's going to be bad. Do you think from a, from a Hopi point of view, would there be a way if people became more aligned with Mother Earth that yeah. it could not happen? You know, they could rebalance things so that it would be, yeah. they got to use less water too, right? Yeah, well, humankind can bring that about, that balance you're talking about. Yeah. Because after all, we are water people. There's water in all of us. And water is both merciful or merciless, is what Hopi say. It has tremendous amount of energy and power. And the scientists use that knowledge and use Einstein's theory of relativity to create an atomic bomb, hydrogen bomb, water bomb. From water. I thought of it that way, yeah. Yeah. Right. Dropped it on Japan, killed millions of people. And Einstein regretted ever sharing that with the scientists. But they used that and it demonstrated the power of water. And we carry that in our bodies. So we have the power to bring balance back to Earth. And in terms of water, We've got to learn from the indigenous people, especially the Hopi people, because they have scientific evidence. They are scientists in their own way. And they're saying water reacts to human emotions and feelings. You know, scientists all over the world are not studying that, and they're, they're proving that to be true. And so we have the power to bring balance back to Earth. And in terms of water, we have to set a new paradigm, a paradigm that's based on Hopi science, wisdom. And that is, you, no man controls water. We think we do. You know, we, for example, build a whole bunch of reservoirs to trap, to tame the wild river called Colorado River for economic purposes. 
to make money. And we, we say we control. So we control water. We manage water. And when, in fact, we are at the mercy of water. It's not the other way around. So what we have to do is to learn to work with water. And it sounds like some of that is the kind of inner aspect that you're talking about, the inner harmony. And then some of the other half of it is maybe you could address this just in terms of actually how you grow plants and conserve and conserve water in your farming and things like that, because you obviously are very careful in that aspect also. Could you talk about that a little bit, just in terms of the ways that you farmed in a very dry area with the Three Sisters and made that? We were ready to farm plant corn, for example. The sponsor, and we have, we put together a planning crew. You know, they're just volunteers that want to help plant the field. And so they're told the sponsor of the farm or the owner, he doesn't own the farm, you know, the guardian or keeper of that plot of field would then say, okay, we're going to start planting on this end. And then up here, I'm going to put down some markers. And so when you start planting, you aim for that, okay? You plant the first seeds about six inches into the ground. You put in about 12 kernels of corn. In each place? In each hole. See, then you take four or six steps, depending on the weather conditions. If it's too dry, you go six feet. If it's wet, four, four or six, and then you plant another one there, another one, and another one. And then you have to align yourself with where you're going. you got to know your history. That's one of the lessons. If you don't do that, you might be thinking you're planting a straight row, but you might be going all over the place. So you have to, every so many Times you plant, you gotta keep look back, align yourself. That's what you're instructed to do. Hmm. And then with each horn you plant, you pray. Really? You pray because you're planting something, you know, and you encourage the seeds to germinate, to mature. Really and you put a little bitty round of sand, because we live in a very sandy area. And that's so when the rain comes, trap that water. And then you wait the seeds to germinate. That's when it's like a baby being born, and the plant comes up and it grows, and then the leaves hit the ground. That's the baby crawling. And you got to take good care of them. you got to be out there every day encouraging them. All very connected. Yep. And then suddenly they're standing up, and they mature, and they bear corn. And then they start getting old. They plants, and they die. But they leave the seeds. So you can plant that again. So this Hopi concept of you start from here, underground. You come up. When you, your body dies, you go back down and go back up. You go back down, you go back up. So you're saying human life is aligned with this yeah, cycle so, of plants. 
Right. So, so in Hopi, there's no such thing as death. The body dies, and when we harvest the corn in October, we take the dry corn off and we put the plants down into the ground. That feeds the soil. And so when you plant one row, the following year you plant another one. You don't go through the same. You do a different one. And you alternate like that. It's conserving moisture. And then when the plants are, oh, maybe five inches off the ground, then you thin them out. If you plant 12 seeds and all 12 seeds come out, you thin them out down to maybe six or four. Why do you plant so many? Is it just always waiting? So to give a chance for plants to grow. And the best ones, I guess. Yeah. The strongest ones. And then when they grow and there's that many, and you don't need that money, many because it takes too much moisture. So you got to reduce the population. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Basically. And that's the Hopi belief, you know, that, that us humans were also start from the ground, from the ocean. We start as water people in a, what they call the lower world. And then we come up. So from this point of view, something like Peabody that wants to suck out a lot of water to, I don't know, was it having to do with mining coal or a power plant? It was a power plant, was it? Yeah, they supply water to two power plants. Okay. So they use a lot of water in the, in the process of burning coal to make electricity. Yeah. So it must seem like it is a huge violation from your point of view. What's that? The reason mining came about was purely to provide cheap power to bring water from Colorado River clear up to Phoenix and Tucson through an open canal that the federal government built called Central Arizona Project Canal. And it's about 320 miles from the origin up to Phoenix, and it goes on to Tucson. And they needed that water real badly because they're cities that are built on the desert. And so they found a cheap way to pump the water. And that was the reason the plants were built, yeah. was to provide that cheap power to pump the water 320 miles clear up to Tucson. And they found coal under Black Mesa, huge amount of coal. And so the Secretary of Interior took advantage of that because Indian reservations are trust lands. They're held in trust by the federal government. It's the federal government that has title, not the tribes. It's just held in trust for us. So that gives the secretary, Stuart Udall, who was one of the legislatures when he was a representative fighting to bring that water to Phoenix and Tucson, and he became secretary of interior, and now he was in a position to make decisions to make it happen. Even though it was on your neck. Well, he didn't know anything about it. Hopis didn't know anything about it. And so he, along with another lawyer named John Boyden, worked together to persuade the Hopi Tribal Council, which is a political body. It's not a traditional government. It's a political modern government. They persuaded the Hopi Tribal Council legislatures to lease a huge chunk of land to Peabody, 
to Michael so it can feed two generating stations. One called Navajo Generating Station, which is on a Navajo reservation on Page, Arizona. Another one is Mojave Generating Station in Nevada. And so the thinking was that these two plants will then supply the needed power, not only to run water to Phoenix and Tucson, but to provide cheap, reliable energy for cities that were going up like crazy in Southern California and Nevada and, and Southern Arizona. They needed a lot of water. So that was the idea. And so Secretary Udall, in his now capacity, convinced the council, we, along with his friend and colleague, they got the council to say, approve the lease with Peabody. In terms of dominion, I suppose. Yeah. Huh? And so it happened. And the lawyer, John Boyden, drew up a lease in which Hopi tribe would be paid $1.67 per acre feet of that pristine fossil water. $1.67 per acre feet. An acre feet is 326,000 gallons. Yeah, right. Look how much that is worth on the market today. It's worth hundreds of billions of dollars economically. For that $1.67, you can't even pay that amount for a quart of water you buy on a, <laughs> from a shelf in a grocery store. Right now, to me, water has now turned into a commodity. It's there for economic gain. And uh, rich people, the politicians are controlling it. And they're doing everything the wrong way, thinking they can just control water, and they can waste it, they can pollute it. And so all that is creating global warming. And global warming means meaning warming the ocean from whence we came, our mother. The water serpent is a, a big part of our story. It's getting restless. It's about ready to roll. Hope you say in their prophecy rock, we are at the very ending of the fourth world. The world is going to turn upside down because of the way mankind is treating Mother Earth. It's going to react. The population is growing so fast. There are many children dying because they don't have access to fresh water. I mean, how can we possibly, as humans, tolerate? We're sacrificing the children. We're killing Mother Earth. But they don't care because their thinking is, well, I just want to make my money today. Your generation can figure out how to take care of yourselves in the future. And then we have the scientists. They'll fix everything. Don't worry about it. There'll always be water because there's always going to be science and technology. And so in the case of Phoenix, Arizona, which is a desert, they're bringing the real estate developers, the economic councils in Arizona, telling more and more people to come. More and more and more. Don't worry about the water. They're stretching the rubber band. At some point, it's going to snap. 
Yeah, look at Cape Town. I mean, that's a state. Yeah. Uh, There's already that happening all over the world, and the population keeps growing. And how can, there's a limited amount of fresh water. How can it sustain life if we are using it in a wasteful way, irresponsible way? It sounds like completely, it's completely different from that residence you were talking about. Right, right. But we can, if we can just combine science, technology with indigenous science, with the religious leaders of established religions, if we can just come together and say we have the brain, we can imagine the fifth world, we got the hands, we can make things, and what we're doing right now, we can communicate and share information, and we can develop the fifth world. But we got to start with water. We got to learn how to work with water. Not against it, not thinking we can control it, but we can work with water and then come up with a sustainable management practices. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.